Let us go to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for being there and that you are not just something that we have imagined. You are the creator of the universe. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in Him and in His name, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, that we come unto you. We recognize the, the greatness of your being. And we see all too, all too well the sinfulness of our own nature. We long for the day when we shall be with you and we will be rid of this sinful body, this sinful self, and we will be blessed to serve you and worship you as you deserve to be worshipped and honored. Even as old John said, we know not what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we can only see him as he is now by an eye faith. And so we treasure that and pray that you would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure and that we be faithful to work out our own salvation in the exercising of our faith and drawing closer unto you and experience more and more what the psalmist spoke about, the prayer of the righteous, that it grows brighter and brighter each day. Help us now as we look into your word and we pray that you would Bless us not only to speak the things that are true and right according to the Scriptures, but that it would be honoring unto you and that it would be food for the souls of all who hear. Unless you bless it to the hearts of those who hear, it will be just so many words. It'll go in one ear and out the other. It might even tickle our fancies somewhat and we might think it to be something that we enjoyed hearing, 
but unless it brings denotable change in our lives or food for our soul, it's just another routine of worship. We don't want that. And yet we fear all too often we fall into the trap. All too often when we sing the songs that we sing, we just go through it by rote without reflecting upon the words that we're saying. And we recognize our God that there will always be this warfare. The Spirit lusting against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. And these are contrary the one to the other so that we cannot do the things that we would. Nevertheless, as we've said before, you abide faithful. You still love us. You still move upon our hearts. And we thank you for even the day of small things, help us not to despise that. But we would pray that you would send the showers of blessings to our souls. And it is in Christ we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you know, last Lord's Day, we finished up with Galatians chapter 2, and so I thought since we're having the Lord's Supper this afternoon, instead of starting with Galatians 3, that we would try to speak something more directly to the Lord's Supper itself. And as you know, this latter part of chapter 11 is the only place in the Scriptures where we're taught about the Lord's Supper. It's mentioned in the Gospels, and it may be alluded to at other places, but here, since the congregation at Corinth was participating in it in a wrongful way, Paul writes to them in order to teach them clearly what it uh, is, Though we're not going to talk about all of that today, but I do want to read uh, read the context before we get to our text, primarily in verse 26. But <clears throat> we'll take and take up in verse 20. No, verse 18, 17. I'll get it right in a minute, maybe. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the congregation, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Literally, it is 
ye cannot eat the Lord's Supper. The reason was that they were divided. Uh, those that were rich and had plenty, they got off together and eat, and those didn't didn't have as much. They ate by themselves, and so the congregation was divided. And even though they went through the form of saying they were having the Lord's Supper, in reality they were not, because the congregation was not united with all of the members. Verse 21, For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and the other is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and drink and to drink in, or despise ye the congregation of God? I know it says church, but it should be congregation. And that gives it more continuity of what is being said. Despise ye the congregation of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And I've emphasized this many times. I want to do it again. The word show there is translated proclaim. In other words, that's the reason uh, when we have the Lord's Supper, that's all we do. Because that's one time the congregation preaches. The minister's not preaching. You're preaching. You're showing. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. And so... Anyway, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And again, I want to emphasize that unworthily is an adverb. It's not unworthy. If it were, then none of us could eat. For none of us are worthy. But it was how they were doing it. They were divided. Some were going eating theirs. The, those that had plenty, they ate theirs by themselves. They were drunken. Those that didn't, they ate by themselves. So they were divided. So it was how the congregation was doing it. And therefore, it, it's an adverb and not an adjective. Thankfully, someday we will be made worthy. What a day that will be. Verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. <coughs> and again, I want to emphasize, it doesn't say let a man examine himself, and if he thinks that he shouldn't do it, not to do it. It says examine and eat. 
examine and eat. It didn't say examine and not eat. I've known people in the past that they didn't take the Lord's Supper because they did some examining and they thought they shouldn't eat and partake of the Lord's Supper and so on. Well, if they're a member of the congregation, they're supposed to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh, and literally here, judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. And the word condemned there is a different word than the word damnation in verse 29. The translators believe that if you took the Lord's Supper unworthily, you, it would damn your soul. And so this is not, uh, this is not uh, the truth of the matter. If you're one of the Lord's, you may be judged, but not condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Now, as I said before, our text is in verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And I've entitled this, The Lord's Death. That's what I want to center upon. The Lord's death. This is what the Lord's Supper is about. It is showing the death of the Lord. The more I read and the more I study about the death of Christ and the longer I live, the more I am amazed at the death of Christ. It's, it, it's just astounding. It's astounding to me and amazing to me that God ordained the second person of the Trinity to become man. That's astounding. Theologians try to explain how it all took place and I'm not so much interested in trying to figure out how it took place as I am in delighting and feasting on the fact that it took place. Not only that, God sent, God the Father sent His Son to die for sinful men. That's amazing. That's amazing that God would send His Son to die for sinful men. And it's amazing that Christ condescended to come. Not only that God would send the second person of the Trinity, but that the second person of the Trinity would desire and delight 
to come. That's astounding. That God would become man. And that Christ was willing to die for sinners. He was willing to die for sinners. Scripture tells us. But most of all, in all of this, I am amazed, and more and more, the longer I live, I'm amazed that Christ died for me. He had me in mind. God had me in mind when He set all of that in motion. And I'm astounded at that. I want to read a verse in Isaiah 53. Just about every time I think about Isaiah 53, I think about what Thomas Watson wrote when he, in his commentary on Isaiah 53, he said that this verse, this chapter is more to be experienced than explained. More to be experienced than explained. But in verse 10, speaking of the death of Christ, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now think about that. You say, that sounds sadistic. It pleased God to bruise the Lord Jesus Christ. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's kindly a lengthy quote, but I want to read part of what John Gill had to say about this verse. The first part where it said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The sufferings of Christ are signified by His being bruised. And as it was foretold, He should have His heel bruised by the serpent. So that in Genesis 3.15. But here it is described to the Lord. He was bruised in body when buffeted and scourged and nailed to the cross and was bruised and broken in spirit when the sins of his people were laid on him and the wrath of God came upon him for them. The Lord had a hand in his sufferings. He not only permitted them, but they were according to the counsel of his will they were predetermined by him. Acts 2.23 He was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Yea, they were pleasing to him. He took a kind of delight and pleasure in them. Not in them simply considered as sufferings, 
but as they were an accomplishment of his purpose, a fulfillment of his covenant and promises, and of the prophecies in his word, and particularly as hereby the salvation of his people was brought about. And then he quoted John ten seventeen, where Christ said, I lay down my life. My, my, my father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it again. God loved him because he died for the souls of the elect. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And then another part of this verse, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Gill said, the work of man's redemption put into the hands of Christ, which he undertook to accomplish, which was with him and before him, when he came into this world and was his meat and drink to do. This he never left till he had finished it. So that it succeeded and prospered with him. And this may well be called the pleasure of the Lord. It was the good pleasure of his will. It was what he purposed and resolved that his heart was set upon and was well pleasing to him as effected by his son. Likewise, the setting up of the kingdom and interest of Christ in the world and the continuance and increase of it, the ministry of the word and the, and the success of that as the means thereof may be also meant. For the gospel will be preached and the gospel church still continued until all the elect of God are gathered in. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Truly God's ways are so far above ours as the heavens are above the earth. Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. Now I want us to focus on two parts about the death of Christ. That is his body and his soul. Christ took upon himself a human body. Philippians chapter 2. We live in an age where people do not like to talk about absolutes. But it was an absolute fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth in a human body. The second person of the Trinity came to this earth and took upon himself a human body. I want to clarify my first statement. He, he didn't come in a human body, but he come and took upon himself a human body. So well, why do you say that? Because uh, there are people that believe that Christ came in a human body. That His humanity 
was eternal. And you'd be surprised at some of the people that believe such things. And I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about the cults. I'm talking about people that profess to believe the doctrines of grace and that teach such things. But anyway, I don't want to get off into that. Philippians chapter 2. We're not going to read all of this, but we're going to read a couple of verses. Verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Now that doesn't mean that he looked like a man. It means that he was a man. The word form in those verses is where, is where we get our word for morphology. You know, morphology is the study of the makeup of man. And therefore, Christ was in the form of a man. He had all of the features of a, any other human being with one exception. He didn't have sin. He had no sin. But He took upon Himself the form of a man. Let's look at a little bit about how He did it. Go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Again, these are historical facts. This is not myth uh, mythology. This is not just a story. This is not something that was made up. We're talking about historical facts. Just as literal as the fact that you were born yourself and lived on this earth for a while. And when you walk in the dirt, you leave footprints in the dirt. And when our Lord walked in the dirt, even though He walked on water, but He also left footprints. That's just how concrete this is. You say, well, why are you emphasizing that? Because it's just as, uh, it's talking about His death. And we're going to get to His resurrection. And it's going to be with our resurrection. These are, his, these are going to be historical facts. Think about it. Think about the reality of it. Think about the reality of dying. Being absent from the body and present with the Lord. Think about the reality of if you were alive when Christ returns, that your body will be changed. You say, what's that going to be like? Nobody knows. We haven't had it. Well, am I in the grave? What's it going to be like to be resurrected? We don't know. But it's going to be. That's the whole point. These are real. This is real, just as real as you're sitting in the pews this day. And His birth is not something to be celebrated at one time of the year. 
when most people don't even know what it's all about anyway. The birth of Christ is a real entity. In Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And so it was that while they were there, where were they? They were in Bethlehem. Why were they there? Caesar, a world ruler, had made a decree. And some, I forget how many years, seemed like it was uh, 15, 16, or so many years before Caesar was going to do this taxation. And he got called away to Spain to fight a war. <coughs> and he had to put the taxation off. Why? Because as we will see when we get to Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time comes. It wasn't time. And beloved, we don't know what's going on in the world today, but I can assure you of one thing. Our same God is in control. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Verse 6, And so it was that while they were there, that is at Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth, forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Swaddling clothes. When a child was born in those days, when the umbilical cord was cut, they put salt in the umbilical place where the uh, on the stomach of the child for the healing of the cutting of the umbilical cord. And then the arms of the child were put to its side and then wrapped around where the salt was to hold the salt in its place and the arms to the side so the baby wouldn't pull it out. That's just how literal and natural the birth of Christ was. It wasn't just some magical birth. He had the birth just like every other human. Wrapped in swaddling clothes. They were put in a manger. Because there was no room for him in the inn. Verse 12. And this shall be a sign, the angel speaking to the shepherds. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Verse 21. 
And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. He was born like any other baby. Just like any other child. He underwent circumcision like any other Jewish boy. The pain of the salt in the wound. The pain of circumcision. We think about the death of Christ, but all of this had to do with the sufferings of Christ. And why? For you, dearly beloved. For you. He didn't come for himself. He came for you. And it pleased him to do so. It not only pleased the Father to send him. It pleased him to come. To take upon himself. And he learned as a child. This is astounding to me. Drop down to the 40th verse. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Fifty-one, Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. This 12-year-old boy was subject to sinful parents. Subject to sinful parents. God manifested in the flesh being submissive to sinful people. His mother kept all these sayings in her heart. But then verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now as God, He knew everything. As God, He didn't need to increase. As God, He didn't need to find favor with God. As God, He didn't need to learn. But as a man, He did. And it was necessary that He become a man or else He couldn't die. The humanity of Christ died, not the deity. You need to keep in mind, and I'm not going to get off into this, but there was only one person. But there were two natures in this one person. Jesus Christ had a divine nature and a human nature. The human nature is what died. The human nature is what suffered. And, and as a result of that, the person was involved. You say, well, how was the person affected? Scripture doesn't tell us. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Received up into glory. Great is the mystery of godliness. Don't ever lose, beloved, don't ever lose the sight of the profundity and the mystery of the godliness of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ.
And if we had the time, we could go into how that he suffered and how that he died and how he suffered uh, at the hands of sinful men, how he was misunderstood by family and friends and by his kinsmen, how he was abused, how he was scorned, all of the beatings and the and all the other things that accomplished in his crucifixion. You know that. You should know that. And I would encourage you from time to time, not just when we have the Lord's Supper, maybe once a week, try to set a, a time or try to focus and think about and meditate on the sufferings of Christ. Why did He suffer? He suffered for you. He suffered for you. Yes, Christ died for all of the sheep. But you need to focus, as Paul did in Galatians 2, <clears throat> Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. Salvation is a personal thing, beloved. It's not a, it is, there's a doctrine in the salvation, but salvation is not for a doctrine for people to argue about. Salvation is for God's people to enjoy, to experience. As Thomas Manton said of Isaiah 53, it's more to be experienced than explained. And he was buried. John 19. John 19. Beginning at verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. Then came, he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. There came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. You talk about essential oils. A hundred pounds of essential oils. What, what's he going to do with these oils? Going to embalm the body of Christ. Of course, the, the embalming was not anything like today, but verse 40. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices. However much the body of Christ weighed, his weight was added by all of the linen clothes and a hundred pounds more. A hundred pounds more. Well, what are we talking about? We're talking about concrete things that took place with the body of Christ. His body was broken for us 
his body. Verse 40 again. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. In other words, he was prepared to be buried just like any other Jew was. It's not some miracle or mystical uh, preparation. Just a regular, normal preparation. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Now, with all the commercialism that goes on with regard to uh, so-called Holy Land tours, we do not know that, well, I was shown a sepulcher. And there was a hole in the rock, and it would be descriptive and fit the description of where maybe our Lord was buried. Whether it was the same place or not, uh, we don't know because we don't know. Uh, men will do anything to make money. But let's just suppose that it was. I never will forget what our guide told us. We had a different guide when we went to the Garden Tomb than what we had in going through the rest of Palestine. But I always appreciated what the guide said. This place is not important. What is important is what took place. In other words, being where Jesus was, you know, we would say, oh, I, I walked right where Jesus walked. Or I was right in the same tomb where Jesus was. Or I sat where Jesus sat. Well, a wicked man can do that. There's no special virtue in being in the same location. But to be a part of it. Beloved, if Christ died for you, you were a part of it. You were a part of it. His body was broken. His body was broken. And we don't want to stop there. Look at next chapter. Chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Drop down to verse 16. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. Now, the touch me not, uh, I don't know why people that supposedly know the original language don't bring this out more, but the touch me not means, literally means quit holding on to me. 
In other words, Jesus said, quit holding on to me. I haven't, I haven't gone back yet. I haven't left yet. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at even, being the first day of the week, when the disciples were shut, where the, uh, uh, where the, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them and uh, and saith unto them in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. He was resurrected. He was resurrected. Literally resurrected. And they were shut up in a room. And He appeared there. You say, well, are we going to be able to do that? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Jesus did a lot of things that we'll never be able to do. But He was there. And... and, in another gospel in Luke, it says, Handle me. Touch me. A spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And then you know in Acts chapter 1, He ascended back to glory. In the same body, the same body in which He assumed from Mary, the same body in which He increased in wisdom and stature, the same body that suffered on the cross, the same body that was buried, the same body went back to glory. Went back to glory. So what's glory like? Don't know. Haven't been there. Haven't been there. Christ is there. It says seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, if God is everywhere, everywhere present and nowhere absent, where's Christ seated? Because his human body is not everywhere present and nowhere absent. You say, well, how do you explain that? I don't explain it. I can't explain it. But it gives you something to think about. Greatest mystery of godliness. Well, I've got to hurry up. Uh, We've been talking about his body. Now we want to talk about his soul. His soul was made an offering for sin. Not only did he shed his body, I mean shed his blood. And and as we consider the sufferings of of his soul, It looks as if the mental anguish of the Lord was far worse than the physical. I've been reading a book by the name of, uh, authored by 
uh, Paul Brand on the gift of pain. He did a lot of work with lepers and uh, the whole thing about pain is is fascinating. I, I need to I need to quit thinking about that or I get won't get what I want to. Look in uh, uh, Psalm twenty two. Think about the sufferings of the Lord. Mental pain is worse than physical pain. In fact, one can set his mind in such a way to not even feel the physical pain. Pain is more than the body sending signals to the brain. Pain is more in the brain than in the body. And Paul Brand makes that plain. And you can see that in some ways. You know, soldiers sometimes may lose an arm in, in the war, but they still have uh, phantom pains. Well, there's no, there's, no, there's no pain in the hand. There's nothing there. It's all in the head. And sometimes people can have placebos, and the pain, is, the, the injury and the wound is still there, but they still don't feel anything. In other words, just our bodies are we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But I don't want to get off into all that. Uh, let's look at the sufferings of Christ. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art, why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. But thou hearest not, and in the night seasons, and am not silent. How many times have you tried to pour out your heart unto God, and it seems like the heavens were brass, and He did not hear you? Think about Christ on the cross, and the agony that He suffering and the pains that he was feeling, physical pains, and yet his soul cries out unto God and God doesn't answer. God doesn't answer. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he did that for you, beloved. This is not just a a scene in a, a, a novel. We're talking about historical facts. We're talking about a reality. And when you eat the bread and drink the wine, His body was broken and His soul was poured out. Think about the death of Christ. That He died for you. And you're proclaiming that death. And that it was a death that accomplished that which He come to do. Verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. 
Have you ever had anybody say, oh, you believe God and, and uh, why is He leaving you in the shape that you're in? Our Lord went through that for you, beloved. For you. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. Have you ever had one bone out of joint? What do you think it would feel like if all of them felt out of joint? My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. His own familiar friends betrayed him. Psalm 41 9 tells even Peter, who was determined to go all the way, denied him. He suffered alone. Being alone is one of the most challenging things that a person can go through. But, but suffering alone is really gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching. Christ suffered alone. Christ suffered alone. Even in the garden, Peter, James, and John went to sleep on him while he was praying. You say, I would never do that. How many times have you sat down or knelt down and started to pray and you went to sleep? How many times do you pray each week? But he gave up his soul. He gave up his soul. Not only his body. Not only did he suffer in the human flesh that he had. But he suffered in his soul. I've only skimmed the surface this morning. But I hope what little I've brought to you. Will cause you when you eat the bread and drink the wine. You'll think of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood as He shed, poured out His life unto death for you. Christ loved me. Yes, He died for the elect, but here's a time of communing with Him. He loved me and He gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, sanctify these truths to our hearts and souls. I fear at least I can 
save for myself. We know these things far more in the head than we do in the heart. But I believe I can honestly say, my God, that I look forward to the day when my whole soul shall be in tune with these truths. And Christ will render the praise that is justly due unto Him. Until then, thank you for being patient with us and long-suffering. And thank you for visiting us from time to time as we think about the death of your darling Son, in whom name in whose name we pray. Amen.